welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, Robert Sala believes DeForest Buckner is our best player, and he's probably not wrong. I don't think Cedric Thornton's going to be joining David Newman in the Hall of Fame post-retirement. And this week, we're going to welcome on Chris Biederman to do the rundown and to give us our arrow up, arrow down players before we get to our season preview series this week with Blake Murphy from the Bird Gang Blitz and from Revenge of the Birds. So let's get right to the rundown and our arrow up from the game against the Houston Texans. And this week, we welcome on a special guest for the rundown and for the game review, the arrow up, arrow down. It's going to be Chris Biederman, brand new beat writer for the Sacramento Bee. Chris, congratulations, dude. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. That's uh, It's awesome. I'm glad that that spot went to you because uh, I thought it was a good move for Matt to go to The Athletic, but I thought, man, no no better person could have taken that that seat that Matt was uh, keeping warm. So congrats. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's been... Um... You know, you know how it is creating content on the internet, and and you have a goal in mind, and um, you know, I I feel like I, I've I've reached you know a goal, but but you know you're never satisfied, and and you always want to keep going, and and on to bigger and better things, and and I think this was this was a good step, and uh, I'm really excited to get started. Yeah, it's great. Uh, outside of the commute during your orientation week, I think uh, things are going to go well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the job won't change, but yeah, this week was a little rough. I was away from the team and, and obviously getting everything handled in Sacramento with, you know, paperwork and and all of that and and sitting in plenty of traffic between the Bay Area and uh and the the capital of the state um isn't the best, but I'm home now and and uh, I'm ready to to get going. Awesome. Well, let's talk about the news this week. Let's hit to the rundown and while this isn't going to be where we're going to cover injuries or any of that stuff, we'll get to that in some of the game recap. Let's talk about the news that happened and really the big article this week was one from Bill Barnwell. He posted the quote what we know about Jimmy G article and well, it was problematic. I I have my own gripes with it and I kind of went through a, a little Twitter rant and even ended with a moment of zen. But I know that you read it as well. What what were your initial impressions from the article? What what did you think? I, I agree with most of it. Um, I, I do think you know the the Niners are going to get tested pretty significantly early in the season, and and he pointed that out. Um, you know they they they're going to have a tough slate, and then like last year, it's going to get easier. And so um, obviously, you know Jimmy Garoppolo is not going to remain undefeated as a starter forever. So you wonder how is he going to. How, how is he going to handle adversity and how is he going to handle a game where maybe he throws two or three interceptions or, you know, as we've seen, sometimes receivers drop inter- balls that end up getting intercepted or they don't run the right route. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you in the sense that I disagree when he said he's, he's not mobile. Um, I think Garoppolo, one of the reasons why he fits so well in Kyle Shanahan's offense is because he is functionally mobile, uh, both in the pocket and on rollout plays and throwing on the run and, and, changing arm angles and, and having the athleticism kind of required. Shanahan isn't going to ask Garoppolo to run very much, obviously. Maybe, you know, once in a blue moon he'll, he'll run a read option keeper um, or a zone read keeper. But, um, yeah, I think Garoppolo is, is definitely functionally mobile enough, and, and I disagree with, with Barnwell's point on that. Um, but I, I think a lot of it, um, you know, I think Barnwell does does a great job, and and I think a lot of it is is um, coming from a place of reason. Um, but I, I think that's the one that really sticks out to me that I disagreed with was was the fact that Garoppolo isn't a mobile quarterback, and that somehow is a detriment to him because 
you know, I don't know that the 49ers, even if Garoppolo was as mobile as, say, Colin Kaepernick, they would want him running that much just from a health perspective. Because, you know, we, in that second start two years ago with, with the Patriots, when he was replacing Tom Brady, he left the game with a shoulder injury. And obviously, um, Garoppolo's health will, could ultimately define the success of the season for San Francisco this year. So they're not going to ask him to run, and they don't want him to run, and uh, they want him to stay healthy. So I think, uh, I think everything else... Um, you know, I see where he's coming from, and and the point about Robbie Gold is, is kind of interesting. You can you can make a case Robbie Gold was the best kicker in the NFL last year, and maybe without some luck, um, maybe the Niners lose one or two of those games last year if if Gold misses one of those kicks that he made, and he was super clutch, and um, you know he hit at a super high percentage, and maybe his maybe Garoppolo's record is a little bit blemished, but um, but yeah, where, where do you fall on, uh, I, I know you went on a little Twitter rant and I know you disagreed with a lot of what he said, but where do you fall on it? Well, I, I definitely disagreed with the mobility thing, but that's not where my issues really with the article begin. My, my issues with the article begin with even just the basic structure of the article. He starts out by saying what we definitely know about Jimmy Garoppolo, and then he goes on to talk about the schedule. Like the schedule is an exigent factor, and, and we know that the schedule is going to get difficult, and we know that teams that have easier schedules have easier roads to the Super Bowl. That is independent of Garoppolo. It's a little bit like saying what we definitely know about Jimmy Garoppolo. He's got a shoulder. Well, yeah, sure, right? <laughs> like, but, but, but right. everyone has a shoulder, and like, can that shoulder hold up? It's like, well, you could ask that question about any quarterback. And, and so that, to me, was a pointless, mindless question. And, you know, he's going to lose a game eventually, sure. The, you know, the, the thing about Robbie Gold, I think, sure, it's fine. But again, that talks about an exigent factor, and it talks about exigent, like, this kind of thing where it's like, well, if someone else... Uh, if it happens because Robbie Gold misses a kick, then Jimmy Garoppolo loses a start. Well, you could say the same thing about Tom Brady and Adam Vinatieri missing this, the game-winning kick in the Super Bowl, right? It's like those those kinds sure. of things are are a little irrelevant. They don't really tell us anything actually substantive about Jimmy Garoppolo. The first right. time that we do get to something substantive, he's not very mobile. I think Barnwell commits you know a, a logical sin, which is that he equivocates. He equivocates a, a quarterback's mobility with a quarterback's rushing ability. And he try and he contradicts himself constantly in this article. I mean, it's constant back and forth, but he talks about how, well, Jimmy G has actually not been sacked at a super high rate, uh, but what about his rushing yards? And and this kind of back and forth is is an issue. So, you know, he talks about potential problems with interceptions, despite calling out that many of the picks were not the quarterback's fault. He says that Shanahan's an excellent offensive mind and continues to point out how Shanahan wasn't very good early on in his career. Like those, this kind of contradictory double talk from from a basic structural perspective doesn't provide, mm-hmm. uh, I think, a really good article, nor does it actually give you a really good distillation of the things that we do and don't know about Jimmy Garoppolo. Because there are things that we don't know about Jimmy Garoppolo. I think the question is is a fair question, but the way that he goes about answering it is is a contradictory mess. And and the mobility thing aside, even if we were to say, okay, well, he he, you know, at best giving Barnwell the best of credit, he he just kind of equivocated it and and that's that. He goes on in the article and he talks about you know, Garoppolo's offense is going to be uh, among the best on first down. Again, things that are not Garoppolo related because it's not necessarily Garoppolo's performance on first down. It's Shanahan's offense performance on first down. You know, sure. so it, it's all these things where it's like, can he stay healthy? Again, an exigent factor. Can his weapons stay healthy? Again, an exigent factor. We can say that about any offense in the NFL. Um, right. and, and so for me, it just it wasn't it wasn't a good article and it didn't tell me much of anything. If I were to rewrite the article and I were to say, okay, 
what's actually instructive here, what's helpful. Here's a better way of approaching the what we know, what we don't know about the kind of probabilistic role that is Jimmy GQ. We know that performance from a clean pocket is the most stable metric. We from from year to year, based on the last kind of ten years of analysis that Pro Football Focus has done, we know that Jimmy Garoppolo's performance from a clean pocket is excellent. So that is likely to continue next year. We know that he excels at throwing to wide open receivers, and we know that Kyle Shanahan is excellent at scheming wide receivers open. We know that Jimmy Garoppolo led the NFL in percentage of positively graded plays. So when he is throwing to players that are open, he does so very, very well as a quarterback would be expected to do. And he excels throwing in the short and intermediate areas of the field. He avoids turnover where he throws. Two of the five interceptions were unlucky, and he definitely struggles with the deep ball. And that's kind of what we don't know. What we don't know is, can that turn around? You know, so then you get to performance under pressure, right? Less stable metric, but he did that very well. Can he continue performing under pressure at the same rate that he did last season? Because that's a less stable metric. Then, then now you get, to, you get a picture of, okay, here are the things we know he does well that are stable. Here are the things we know he doesn't do well. And here are the things that he did well, which are not stable and may not be sustainable. And that, to me, is a much more accurate reflection and a better article than some of the crap that Barnwell put up. <laughs> sure and and i totally i totally get all of that i i think one question that more of a broader theme that i have the uh, broader theme that, that i'm curious to see how it unfolds as, as the season progresses is you know people talk about um you know the the second season of a quarterback uh in in his system and and is a defense going to adjust and or our defensive coordinators going to adjust and our you know, team's going to have um, a, an easier time defending him because there's more of a sample size with the personnel. And and I tend to think that that's not really going to be a factor for Garoppolo just because Kyle Shanahan's offense is so multiple and they can do so many different things out of the same look. And Shanahan's basically been running the same scheme for years now, and he's still been successful with it. It's It's not the type of thing where you can just take this away and then you know the the offense is playing left-handed i think there are so many contingencies built into shanahan's offense that it it plays well year over year and i i would expect garoppolo to excel in his second season with a broader knowledge of the playbook not having to learn it on the run as he did last year and, and actually understanding you know the whys of each decision within the offense and the system that that kyle shanahan and garoppolo have talked about so much this offseason um, one concern I do have is is the running game. You know, you you look at Jarek McKinnon and the type of runner he is and the type of athlete he is, and you would say naturally, oh, this is a more athletic Devonta Freeman, and this is a situation where the running game and his ability to to be uh, a receiver out of the backfield and, and a matchup problem, particularly on third down, could really help the offense. But McKinnon's hurt right now, and we don't know exactly where he's going to be when the season starts, and we don't know. Um, how much of the load he's going to carry, and then, w- w- then to go further with that, his backup Matt Breida is dealing with a shoulder injury, and then you really don't have any clear-cut answers beyond that. So Matt Breida suffers a shoulder and pass protection, and obviously the one thing you're concerned about with Breida is his size because he's 190 or 200 pounds, depending on who you ask. If you ask Breida, he'll tell you he's 200 pounds. But the fact that he separates a shoulder on one of his first pass protection snaps that sort of uh, you know, raises a red flag in terms of where he's at in t- with his physicality and his size. And he's obviously a tough runner who doesn't shy away from contact. And you wonder if that's going to be an issue throughout the season. And then how does 
that in turn affect McKinnon and then overall the potency of the running game, which is going to be important for the passing game because Shanahan relies so heavily on play action to set things up and be multiple within the scheme. Um, so I'm curious as to how, as to how uh, the, the injuries or the, the running back situation and, and the running game are going to impact Garoppolo and if he's far enough along in his knowledge of the system to be able to overcome that and to, you know, is, is Shanahan just going to dial up passes at a 65% clip instead of, you know, maybe being closer to 55 or 60%, which is probably where he would want to be in, in an ideal world. Um, so I'm curious to see how that goes and, and how um, defensive coordinators adjust and, and how the offensive line plays because, you know, you have a rookie right tackle in Mike McGlinchey who, you know, looked at times like a rookie during training camp and, and had some really good reps in the preseason, but he's going to be tested right away with Everson Griffin and, and Daniil Hunter in that, in that week one opener. And then you got all those pass rushers in the AFC West, uh, you know, if and when Khalil Mack comes back, um, Justin Houston in Kansas City, uh, Ingram and Bosa, at, you know, with the Chargers, and Von Miller and and uh, and Nick Chubb, of course. And uh, so, you know, the, these are these are all questions that you have about the offense, not necessarily about Garoppolo, because I think I feel comfortable in saying after watching a full training camp of Garoppolo, he has a better understanding of the offense. He has a better command of the offense. And like you mentioned, he's really good at hitting open receivers. He's really good uh, at avoiding pressure and, and making good throws while under pressure. And uh, and he's very accurate in the shorter intermediate areas. And he's gotten better throwing the deep ball. I, that you could see it as camp progressed. It started out a little bit rough with Marquise Goodwin, but they worked a lot at it. They spent time after practice, and you could see them um, getting that connection. Uh, you know, making it a little bit stronger. And that showed set, uh, Saturday in the preseason game in Houston with that second throw he made when he hit that when he hit Goodwin with a perfect forty yard ball downfield uh, up the left sideline, which which has become a regularity during practice. So um, that's where I'm at with Garoppolo. And, and I'm curious where you fall on, on the idea on, you know, how, how the running game and, and how opposing defenses are going to approach Garoppolo and how that's going to affect his first full season in the system. Uh, I think you're right that he's not going to have a potential sophomore slump only because this isn't really his sophomore season there. When you think of that sophomore slump, you're thinking of a second year quarterback. And even though this is his second year as a full-time starter, it's not even a second year. It's kind of like his, you know, I guess halfway through a one and a half year kind of stint as a starter. Um, but he's already got a pretty good base of how to function and work in the NFL. And I don't think that's really going to be an issue. And I think you said it exactly right. I think Shanahan's offense is not predicated on, you know, you take away one arm and you're now operating with your left. He's got so many things at his disposal that I don't think it's too much of a concern. And I'm not really that concerned about the running game either. When you look at last year, the running game was 13th in the NFL based on DVOA's kind of pass rushing um, or rushing DVOA. Wasn't, it wasn't great. wasn't bad. It was right near the middle of, of the pack. And I don't know that the Niners need any much more than that when it comes to being able to rush the ball. The, the rushing game, especially when it comes to play action, you don't need to be a good rushing team for it to be effective, for your play action to be effective. You just need to, for whatever reason, you know, threaten to run the ball, even if you're not very good at it, and defenses react. And Shanahan is very, very good at doing that because of the way that he integrates the, the running and the passing. So I, I don't know that I'm too worried about that. If anything, I think the running game is going to be a little better this year because they have a better center in the running game. This preseason, Weston Richburg has not, he's had a little bit of an up and down season, but our preseason, but you can see why 
he was selected by the Niners to be the replacement setter, and that's because he's much more athletic. He's much better at those reach blocks. And McGlinchey also is better at, you know, kind of the on-the-move zone runs that than Trent Brown was. And I think he still has some growing pains early on. But I think by the time you get to the middle of the year, you're going to see the running game flourish because I think McKinnon's a better runner than Carlos Hyde was. McKinnon's overall pro football focus grade last year was in the 70s, whereas Carlos Hyde's was in the 50s. And, and Matt Breida also, I think, is very good. I'm not worried about his injury. It's a freak injury. He kind of fell on that shoulder. Um, and, and I don't know that that uh, maybe him not being 200 pounds helped because he didn't have as much weight falling on the shoulder. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not too worried about the run game because I don't know that that's how the team is going to win games. I think that's going to that's going to be how they close out games. And I think the more opportunity they get to close out games in the run game, uh, that will help them. They're going to win games, though, on Garoppolo's arm. And that doesn't need the running game to excel. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with everything you said. I think that's interesting. Um, so what's the, what's next? What's next on the rundown? Let's talk about Richard Sherman real quick. And I just want to get your okay. kind of quick reaction to his fantastic analogy because I love analogies. I think analogies are great. They help people understand complex concepts. And he was talking about that clip that got thrown around early in training camp where he got beat off the line by Marquise Goodwin. And he mm-hmm. said that the practice video is basically like that video getting released is like having a rough draft for an author being released early. It's not your best stuff, but it's part of the process. And, and that really you should be worried about what the final draft looks like, what it looks like on Sundays. Because the rough draft, you're tweaking things, you're playing with things, you're getting into shape. And, and so it's basically kind of judging someone off of an incomplete picture. I thought it was great. I thought it was a fantastic analogy, eloquently stated. And it makes a ton of sense. And it just, you know, further cements my, my longstanding love for Richard Sherman because I can say with 100% honesty that I've never, ever said a mean thing about Richard Sherman. I've always <laughs> loved him as a player, as a human, and, and I've never said a single bad thing about him, and this just continues that trend. Yeah, and, and as a writer, I can totally relate to, to what he's saying. I, you know, the clip, I mean, rightfully so, I guess, went viral because it's Richard Sherman's first rep in practice wearing a 49ers helmet, and it didn't go well. And And the thing that I think people might have glossed over is the fact it was his very first rep in one-on-ones coming off of an Achilles tear. A one-on-one, uh, by the way, that's lean, that is basically for the wide receiver. Right. Because one-on-one reps right. between there's, a DB and a wide receiver are meant for the wide receiver to win. Right. And there's no, uh, there's no safety help. Um, there's no, obviously there's no defensive structure. And what Sherman did was instead of playing off, you know, Kyle Shanahan talked about it at length afterwards, too. He appreciated the fact that Sherman was willing to play up on Goodwin because obviously that's the risk you take when you're playing against someone as fast as Marquise is that if you miss the jam initially at the at the line of scrimmage, then Goodwin's going to burn you deep. And it's going to be, you know, that with no safety help over the top, then it's going to look even worse than it would in a real game situation. And obviously there's no pass rush. The, the, the quarterback is just standing there waiting for the receiver to get open to throw it. And obviously Sherman isn't going to look great in that situation. So, yeah, I mean, we see it all the time in practice. And, and it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I, I try to try not to, to overreact to anything you see on the practice field, is particularly – in situations like that, just guys are working on things. Guys are putting themselves in situations, you know, adverse situations 
where, you know, just to, just to help them prepare both mentally and physically for, for, you know, game situations. And Sherman, obviously, I don't think anyone in the world, even with a hundred percent healthy Richard Sherman, not coming off an Achilles tear, I don't think anybody would expect Sherman who ran, I think a four, five, eight before his draft, uh, would keep up with Marquise Goodwin, who's, you know, one of the two or three fastest players in the league. So, you know, I, I agree with, with everything Sherman said. And, and I think, um, the, the players in the locker room and, and I know Kyle Shanahan does, they respect the fact that Sherman was so aggressive in that rep because Sherman could have, you know, played off and, and did everything he could to keep Goodwin in front of him and take away that deep route. But he said, this is my first rep. This is the fastest guy in the team and one of the fastest in the league. I'm going to try to jam him and be aggressive because that's who I am. And, um, and you know, it, it's going to get better. Uh, but I do have some concerns about Sherman's health because, um, and, you know, I, I wasn't in Houston. I know he didn't work a whole lot. But even before that, uh, when he was coming back from the hamstring injury, you know, I was a, the Dante Pettis put a move on him during a red zone drill, a full team red zone drill, where uh, he cut inside and then it was a double move, cut inside and cut outside. And Sherman almost fell down like he completely lost his balance. And, and Pettis was wide open in the quarter of the end zone. But the play went the other direction. I think it was an incompletion. But I was focused on Sherman versus Pettis. Because Pettis has been really good against Sherman, and, and I wouldn't necessarily knock Sherman for that. I think it speaks to more uh, of how good Pettis has been, um, particularly in running routes and, and getting open and, and things like that. But it really stood out to me that Sherman is still, you know, he's not close to 100%. And I don't know what percentage of, of Richard Sherman we're going to see. And, you know, we're going to have our best look Saturday in this third preseason game against Indianapolis. Um but I'm curious to see what, what Richard Sherman, the 49ers, get. And is it going to be good enough to where he's still an upgrade over Dante Johnson? I would imagine that he's going to be. Um, you know, he, did, he, didn't, he didn't miss a game uh, for the first seven seasons of his career. Um, I think this is year eight for him. I, I might be mistaken. But, um, you know, he was, a, he was a model of durability. I think he's a guy who knows his body really well. Uh, to not miss a start. I think it was 117 straight starts to not miss any, including the playoffs is a real testament to him because that's really hard to do in the NFL. Anybody who's followed the Niners over the last few years understands how hard it is for to, for any player to play 16 games. Um, so I give Sherman the benefit of the doubt in that he knows his body. He knows what the process is and he's building up to week one and he's not going to be at hundred percent right away. And obviously the hamstring strain he, he's had in the second week of training camp slowed him down a little bit. Um, and he had to work his way back from that too, which is another thing, uh, on top of the Achilles tear. So, um, I'm very curious to see what version of Richard Sherman we see. I'd imagine it's still going to be good enough to be an upgrade over Dante Johnson. If he's 90% of the player he was with Seattle last year, he could potentially be a massive upgrade over Dante Johnson, which in turn could have huge ramifications on the success of the defense. If he's more, you know, like 60 to 70% of the player he was, then I wonder, is, is this defense going to take the necessary steps, particularly in the red zone, particularly on third down, to be good enough? Because teams are going to be passing on the 49ers a lot because I'm under the assumption that the Niners are going to score a bunch of points like they did over those last five games last year. And is the pass defense going to be good enough for them to you know, insert themselves in the conversation for a playoff berth or, or a division crown.
All right, let's talk about that game in Houston. And while you weren't there, I'm sure you've seen the game. And, and what we like to do here on the Better Rivals podcast is do a little bit of arrow up, arrow down. It's not about looking at, you know, kind of what happened in the game in terms of, oh, they won the game or they didn't win the game. But it's mostly about players that performed well against competition, who got snaps where, uh, and how they overall performed individually. So we've got a couple of arrow up, arrow down players. Uh, I think I've got three or four arrow up players and I've got an arrow I've got three arrow down players and, and we'll start with one that's probably on both of our lists and that's going to be one Mr. Sheldon Day his overall grade from pro football focus was 90 that puts him in the elite category he came in to relieve Buckner at the three technique and immediately made his presence felt he had two hurries two stops and a forced fumble his 27.3 percent run stop percentage led all NFL interior linemen with 10 plus run snaps in week two Sheldon Day has just been one hell of a find off waivers from Jacksonville. Yeah, I would agree. And and that is an extension of, of what we've seen during training camp. He's been one of the best players on the field um, with the second unit. And and I think he was he was the same guy uh, on Saturday. I'm curious to see is, uh, what role he has. Uh, does his production lead to more snaps with the first team? Obviously, is, is he going to be um, more is his ascension or his production going to allow them to have DeForest Buckner on the edge more? Um, because there's a chance that Sheldon day is one of their four best linemen right now when, you know, when they don't have a nose tackle on the field, I, I like what Earl Mitchell does against the run, but I don't know that he's going to play very much. Uh, so when they go to sub packages or when they're not in their base defense, is Sheldon day going to play enough three technique to allow them to have DeForest Buckner on the edge to where Buckner maybe could assume that Calais Campbell role and, and uh, you know, finally see his sack total uh, get to where the 49ers need it to be. You know, is, is he going to be a 10, 11, 12 sack guy? Uh, because I think he might be their best edge rusher right now, which is, which is both a credit to Buckner and, and just how athletic and versatile he is, but it's also an indictment of the Niners edge rushers. I don't, you know, I think, um, obviously that's going to, that's going to be an area of concern going into the season. So oh, yeah. is Trust Buckner going to we'll, help we'll talk about fill that, that, that void down. and is Sheldon day going to be part of that too? Uh, I think having Sheldon day on the interior is, is, a, is an interesting thought. I, I think the only reason that Earl Mitchell's on the team is because of the $4.1 million cap hit, honestly. And it's a team and it's a cap hit the team can absorb. But I think my, my next arrow up player is DJ Jones and he was right. a 100% immovable object in the run game. He graded out as elite on the game as well. His, his grade was 91.4. He flashed last year, had some really good run reps. I remember tweeting out a rep last year where he absolutely crushed uh, the Cowboys center. And, and I mean, this is a Cowboys center who, Frederick is the best center in football when he's healthy. And, and he just got crushed absolutely by DJ Jones. And DJ Jones is doing the exact same thing this year in the preseason. And I think he's the team's best nose tackle. So I think if, you, if you're looking at snaps that Earl Mitchell has right now, DJ Jones can take those in the run game. And then in the passing game, I think you're absolutely right. You can have someone like Day and Thomas on the interior and then move Buckner to the exterior or to the edge, have him rush like Calais Campbell, and then take whomever you want and put them on the other edge and, and off you go. I think that's probably not a bad defensive lineman or a defensive line alignment. Yeah, I think Mitchell they like for the intangible stuff, for you know the veteran presence. Oh, he's a, so he's a guy who it's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there but there is value in that. I think. Uh, no, I agree that there is value. I I just wonder at what point 
at what point a locker room no longer requires a player that isn't performing because of the the value they provided in the locker room? And I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, th- sure. there's a reason that Kyle Shanahan's leading that locker room and not me, obviously. So, you know, well, I guess we'll we'll figure out what happens there. But ultimately, I think Day is obviously making the team. There's not a worry about him getting cut. And, and no. I think he's the, the team is better for it. So I think got, Jones is safe, too. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Question. So I've got two more people on my arrow up list. But did you have anyone on your arrow up list that you thought performed very well? Uh, I thought Fred Warner acquitted himself pretty well. Um, I know, it was, it, you know, not every rep for him is going to be perfect. But I, I'm I'm a I'm I'm high on him uh, sort of, you know, aside from his performance on Saturday, just from a standpoint of, you know, I think there's a very real chance he could be a starter uh, week one and two when Reuben Foster's on the shelf. He's he's dude, an incredibly what, smart dude. What's going on with uh, Malcolm Smith? I mean, he's injured, but this has been... I, I'm not sure that I've seen more than like five snaps of him in an Niners uniform. Is there something else going on there? I don't think there's anything else going on. I think he's just a massive question mark. The fact that, you know, he made a, he made a big point to say going into that preseason opener that this preseason means a lot to him because he hasn't been able to get on the field with this team yet, and he left after two or three plays. Um, so they're, they're going to be careful with his hamstring and they won't say what his injury was coming into, uh, coming into training camp that, that led to him being on the shelf for the first week. But I'm wondering if it is a hamstring and if he did aggravate it, um, I don't know that for a fact, but, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to do some poking around and figure out what the injury was. Um, and yeah, I mean, poke regardless, around, poke if, around if Malcolm Smith it, and see where he winces, uh, and then let me know <laughs> what the injury is. I think the poking but, around is a good strategy, Chris. I like it. Yeah. But it, so is it more problematic if he's had two separate leg injuries over the last few weeks, or is it more problematic if he aggravated the same leg injury? I think either way, he's a big question mark. Um, but if he's healthy, he could be that guy starting next to Fred Warner, just because I know how Robert Sala feels about him. Um, so I, and so, you know, bouncing off that, that Fred Warner thing, I'm optimistic about him and I'm a little pessimistic about Malcolm Smith just because, you know, these reps mean something to him just because he, he has to prove that, you know, he has to prove the 49ers, right. The fact that they gave him that big contract, um, they have to prove that, you know, Robert Sala, everything, all the glowing words he's said about Malcolm Smith and his leadership and his knowledge of the defense and things like that, that doesn't mean anything if you can't get on the field. So uh, they, they need him there. Um, but Fred Warner is, is an interesting insurance policy, particularly when Reuben Foster comes back. Next arrow up player for me is actually Josh Garnett, believe it or not. His, his pro football focus grade doesn't look great, 54.9. But I think overall he looked much better than he did a year ago. He looked good in the run game. He looked nimble. The weight loss has definitely helped. He got to the second level often, tracked and hit his player. He's had problems with balance in the past. He ended up on the ground a lot. Um, And he also improved in the passing game, I thought. He handled a few stunts very well. He did allow two pressures, and I think this is what brings his single game grade down a lot. In the Pro Football Focus system, because interior pressures don't happen often because you have that center guard triumvirate that can double team usually the most effective pass rusher and thus neutralizing it, because you don't see a lot of pressure on the inside a lot, when there is interior pressure, you get a huge ding for that in the pro football focus system. And I think that's really what's taking Garnett's grade down in a single game. I think overall, compared to where he was last year, he looked much better. He moved around much better. And and I do think that over the course of a year, he could really actually perform really, really well. I, I do think Mike Person is making the team. 
he also had a, a pretty good game. But I, I think that overall, it wasn't it was a solid showing with Josh Garnett. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think um, just the fact that he he was competitive and he held his own and he didn't play terribly um, is I, I mean the the bar for him in my mind is a little bit low just because um, you know I do have questions about his long term fit in the system. I did have questions about his physicality. Um, you don't love to hear things like Kyle Shanahan sort of question the injury and say there isn't really. Uh, an explanation for the injury. Oh, yeah, that was a weird the, one, right? Because that was the first time I'd ever heard Shanahan call out a player like that, where he's like, oh, yeah. he should be back tomorrow. And it's like, I'm surprised he's not here today. The subtext of that is, is this guy tough enough? And is this thing for real? Or is there something else going on? And I think Shanahan, I, I mean, I, I don't think he minces words. I think he's a terrible liar. So I think that there's there was some truth. There was a kernel of truth in that, and you know what is going on with Josh, and we expect him to be out there because we looked at this injury and we don't see it to be significant enough for him to miss two weeks like he has. So the fact that he came out of the game healthy and he held his own, I think, is definitely a good sign. Um, I still, I mean, you, you mentioned um, Earl Mitchell's contract. They gave Jonathan Cooper four million guaranteed, and he's done very little. and And they're probably waiting on him, maybe being a little bit more patient with him, just because um, they like his upside. If he if he gets healthy, I think they believe Jonathan Cooper at one hundred percent is better for this offense than Joshua Garnett at one hundred percent. Hence the the four million dollars. Um, so I'm curious to hear what what your impression has been of him. I know he played just super limited snaps on Saturday. Yeah, I didn't see anything that impressed me. He looked a little, he looked slower and less athletic than Garnett, in my opinion. But that could also be just him coming back from injury. Overall, he didn't grade out super great. Um, And and so I think it's one of those things where you have to take injuries into account when you're, you're evaluating the player. But, you know, I mean, he rated out at 51, not really all that great rated out less than than or, or less effective than than Garnett. So, I didn't see anything on the film that would immediately make me think that Cooper has a leg up other than the contract. And mm-hmm. and so I think that honestly Garnett is they're both talented. I do think Cooper probably has produced for longer at a higher level than Garnett. But I, but I do think that Garnett especially if he can continue this ascent is good and honestly, Persons performed better than both of them thus far anyway. Yeah. So, so if I'm going to go with, with upside, I'm probably going to go with Garnett and I'm going to have person there and I'm going to let those two fight it out. I mean, this, this is the team that went through Lake and Tomlinson and, and if they can kind of wait for him to develop into the player that they thought he was, I figure they can do something similar with Garnett. But at the same time, I would not be surprised if they cut him because they thought that person and, and Cooper were able to, to, to get them by. Yeah. And I think both, now, I think both Cooper and Garnett make the team because Magnuson's hurt. Uh, it sounds yep. like he's going to start the year on IR, and maybe yep. he'll be a, um, a return designation candidate. But um, I'm with you. I think Person's making the team, whether he's a starter at right guard or not, just because he's the backup center. Exactly. Um, and and Magnuson was the other guy, uh, you know, working with the second team at center when uh, when Person was playing first team right guard. So I think Person, Garnett, and Cooper are all going to make the team now. And I wasn't so certain about that when Magnuson was healthy just because 
Magnuson can can play all five spots if needed, not necessarily at a high level. But I was going to say that's a bit of a stretch. He can play three of the spots, and the other two are a are a well, oh god. I please yeah. don't let him play the other two anymore. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, you don't want Eric Magnuson playing tackle, but the fact that he can do it um, and play center, I think that I think they like him a lot, and I and I always tend to give the nod to the guy who was brought in by the current regime. You know, and they brought him in last year. He's versatile. Um, and we there are still questions about Garnett. But now I think that because Magnuson's hurt, both Garnett and Cooper are going to make the team. All right, let's get to the arrow down players. Uh, my first arrow down player is Jeremiah Tauchu. His grade was abysmal, 44.4. Uh, he did have three total hurries. His pass rush grade was a little better, 66. Uh, but that was against twos and threes. He did not acquit himself well. He did not make an impact. You would think that a one-year prove-it player who you know is supposed to be... He was really the only real edge addition the team made other than re-signing Cassius Marsh. You would think that you'd expect more out of that player against backups, against twos and threes, and, and I just didn't see it from him. Again, one game, but it was a game where he looked a lot like the player that he, looked, that he was in San Francisco, or I'm sorry, that, was, that he was in San Diego, which is not very effective. Yeah, I agree with you. I expected him to sort of uh, emerge maybe against, you know, not, I don't know that we would have taken a ton from him getting a sack or two against, you know, backup offensive linemen, particularly Houston's backup offensive linemen. Um, but yeah, I think overall he, he's been pretty underwhelming and it speaks to sort of the minimum contract that they signed him to. Um you know, this is a second round talent and this is a guy who is is physically impressive and has movement skills that you want along the edge, but the production just hasn't been there. And and the fact I mean, Houston Houston's gotta have one of the worst offensive lines in the league, and I think that's the biggest question about them. But the fact that Atauchu didn't pose more of a threat against Houston's backups is is problematic. Um, and you wonder exactly, you know, where he stands in the eyes of the coaching staff, because, you know, I thought early on in the process that Atoucha was a lock to make the team. And now I'm not really so sure because we haven't seen much at practice and we certainly haven't seen much in the preseason so far. All right. So well, my next arrow down player is going to be the, the arrow down player that everyone's been really arrowing down. And that's going to be one of Mr. <laughs> Joe Williams. Uh, is this the week that Joe Williams died? Maybe. Maybe I mean he's he's hurt now, so he's got um, I personally ribs. thought he's not going to play for the rest of the preseason. And he right. didn't hurt his ribs; he hurt his ribs like the last play of uh, in the fourth quarter, right on that interception. It wasn't early on. You know what? I I be totally honest with you, and I and I hate being um, you, you know I'm not a doctor, but I I was on the field during warmups of the first preseason game, and he just he didn't look healthy, and he. I don't know. Um, I don't know what it was. I don't. I don't know if if he was hurting beforehand, um, but he didn't look healthy. And, and I wonder if if you know he aggravated something and they're calling it something else, or if they're looking for another excuse to put him on inter- injured reserve. Um, but he he just looked banged up and he was moving around like he was banged up. And obviously he didn't play particularly well. I know he had that one yard touchdown, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, as well as John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan have done um, in, in the early going of their tenures with finding late-round picks, they're not going to hit on everybody. Um, there's just no team in the league that has a success rate where, you know, in rounds four, five, six, and seven that everyone becomes a, becomes a key contributor. And, you know, I think 
I think Joe Williams is going to come out of this as, as the glaring omission. Um, and, and I, I just don't see how he, how he turns this around unless maybe he's gone on IR given the return designation at some point when he is healthy and then comes in and helps a banged up running back room later in the year. I think that's the only chance he has. And, uh, and there's a real possibility that they just cut bait altogether because they're, they're tired of the, of, of waiting on him to, to show the urgency and, and play through, you know, injuries and play hard and be that, be that player that that Kyle Shanahan thought he would be. I just don't think that's there anymore. And maybe it happens down the road, but I'm not seeing it right now. And and if Alfred Morris is as durable as he's been throughout the rest of his career, um, I would I would imagine that he's going to be the one rounding out that running back group and and not Joe Williams. All right. So my next down player is going to be Jaquaski Tart. He actually had a pretty bad grade this game, 36.6, mostly because he blew an assignment on the goal line, giving up the easy touchdown to Ellington. He was a primary coverage defender on two plays, both of which went for uh, some receptions and some yardage, which, of course, is bad news. I don't think that means much for the long-term prospects of Jaquaski Tart. I think the the other play that he blew was one where he was kind of caught peeking inside, and then the ball gets snapped, and the tight end just cuts inside immediately, and Deshaun Watson hits him on the crossing route and it was off to the races at that point. So, you know, I'm not too worried about Jaquaski Tart long-term, but he didn't have a great game against Houston. And so that's why he gets on the, uh, the arrow down list. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not entirely worried about that. If, if the coaching staff was really concerned, they would have kept the safety in for longer Reed. than one drive. And Colbert, Colbert and Tart both played only that one series and then were taken out of the game. So, um, you know, there's not a ton of depth at safety. Safety used to be a pretty deep spot. Um, maybe Jimmy Ward ends up, you know, they, they talk about Jimmy Ward as a backup, but we've only seen him play cornerback to this point. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think the coaching staff is comfortable there with the starters, but there are maybe some concerns about the depth and that's why they got Tart out of the game because they wanted to give Chancellor James, uh, a, a chance to, to get some, to get some reps after missing all of last year. All right. Anyone else arrow down for you that we haven't covered? Arrow down. Um, I just think the pass rush as a whole, you know, we, we haven't seen much. We haven't seen much from Cassius Marsh either. Um, we haven't seen much from Eli Harold. I know he was, he was in coverage and I think he blew a responsibility on uh, one of those long passing plays. I think you mentioned uh, to the tight end on that first drive um, on a deep, deep route to the, towards the left sideline. But, you know, we're still waiting to see it. And if, the 49ers don't make an upgrade uh, along those if you know if they don't bring back Elvis Doomerville um if they just keep the status quo along the edge you wonder you know how much of a detriment that's going to be because we mentioned earlier the teams are going to be passing against the 49ers a lot because the 49ers are going to be scoring a bunch of points so are they you know is DeForest Buckner uh the combination of Buckner Eric Armstead Solomon Thomas going to be enough to push the pocket and bother quarterbacks to be effective on third down and first turnovers which is where the 49ers weren't good last year um uh, is that going to be good enough for them to remain competitive? Because if quarterbacks just stand back there and and have a chance to, to pick apart the secondary, I think that's going to be problematic. So the fact that they didn't get any sacks in Houston against a really bad offensive line um, is somewhat alarming. I, I'm not making you know any uh, any final judgments based on the second preseason game, but I think coming away from it, that's that would be the top concern that I have. All right, Chris. Well, thanks for coming on to the show. Congrats again on your new gig at the Sacramento Bee, and, uh, and good luck, man. Be reading your stuff. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. And now we transition to our season preview series, and we continue with the final team in the AFC West, the Arizona Cardinals. And with us, we have Blake Murphy from the Bird Game Blitz podcast, as well as the Twitter sphere. You can find him at Blake Murphy 7. And of course, he writes for Revenge of the Birds. Blake, thanks for coming on once again to the Better Rivals podcast. Hey, happy to be on. Thanks for having me back. So we like to invite other writers and other people who cover the division foes for a, a season preview. And we'll talk about the kind of core questions that will define the 2018 season. And maybe we'll heed Chandler Jones' suggestion and just not talk about the Super Bowl. But first, you've been on once before. And when you were on once before, this was two years ago, we predicted that the Rams would kill Carson Palmer. And they did. They just did it a year late. And since then, we've given you another gift. And that was, of course, Mr. Glane Babbert. So from one formerly downtrodden Niners fan to a soon-to-be downtrodden Cardinals fan, my apologies. No, definitely. Well, at least uh, the best thing that the team has going for them is they entered the offseason with zero quarterbacks on the roster. And they've exited with, um, you know, Sam Bradford and Mike Glennon, which is not really a solid thing. But they did at least finally land a quarterback of the future in Josh Rosen, which kind of completes the, you know, the young quarterback quad that you can take a look at in the NFC West of having the Niners with Garoppolo locked up long term, Russell Wilson. Jared Goff still on his rookie deal, and the Cardinals are very high on the uh, on their forthcoming uh, kind of. I guess you could at least say they're hopeful franchise quarterback that they've acquired this last year, but he's not going to be the guy that's probably going to be seeing uh, you know the most majority of the starts this year if Sam Bradford's healthy. And uh, as we know in the NFC West, that is always a tentative thing. Well, we've I've got my beer ready here. We've got the official Jarek McKinnon beer of the Better Rivals podcast. It's Flavor Country from Austin Beer Works. Uh, it uh, it comes in a purple can, which is which is why we we've dedicated it to Jarek McKinnon, even though he is now, of course, wearing red and gold. Let, let's get to the basics because we'll talk about quarterbacks definitely a little bit later. But win projections, Football Outsiders has you at seven point six wins. It's actually a little bit better than the Forty ers but that is the twenty first. Uh, I guess, ranking, best, worst, however you want to look at it, uh, in the league. Niners ranked 25th. Pro Football Focus has your chances of winning the division at 14%. They have the Niners at 27%. Pro Football Focus is a little higher on the Niners, I think, than Football Outsiders. And this year's PFF ELO strength of schedule for the Cardinals is going to be 7th. Do any of those kind of projections or percentages surprise you at all? No, I don't think so, because you've got a lot of unknowns coming off of a team uh, that a year ago, many people were looking at as potentially being a five-win team to potentially being a 10-win team, depending on how it shook out. And they kind of split the middle and the difference at eight and eight. And I think that's where I would have them as well. This is a team that is in a transition year. It's not going to be maybe as much of a rebuilding year. Their defense uh, with a new defensive head coach is probably going to be arguably better than it was a year ago, provided that they can keep some of their core players healthy. Whereas in the offense, there's nothing but question marks as far as with their quarterback and their offensive line stay healthy. Is David Johnson going to return to form? And is there going to be any sort of fall off for Larry Fitzgerald? And they really have not gone out. They've acquired guys, but there's not really another proven receiver currently on the roster. So while there is a lot up in the air, there's at least enough of the team that's still intact from the previous year and enough improvements that it's hard to see them pushing for a playoff spot. But it's hard to see them fall off and have just a terrible 4-12 and or a 5-11 and season either. So most of those projections to me seem reasonable. And I, I do think that a lot of the media that 
are picking the Cardinals to have a, a five-win team be a top 10 pick, I do think that they're uh, really overselling that a lot. Look, you can't answer or ask all the questions that we're going to ask in the show in the preamble. All right, so simmer down on the questions. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. No, I, I think those are all good points. Now, you mentioned new head coach Steve Wilkes, and I'd love to talk a little bit about him because I don't know that he was a name that was really widespread as like a hotshot coaching candidate. He comes from the school of Riverboat Ron. Uh, he was with Ron Rivera at the Bears, Chargers, and Panthers. So he's mostly been with Ron Rivera throughout his career. Strong defensive guy. That's been his focus. And, and that's a little bit counter to what the NFC West identity is emerging, of course, with Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, and and now, of course, I guess you could with Russell Wilson, any team can be an offensive powerhouse. So, you know, what what did Steve Wilkes bring to the Cardinals table that the Cardinals thought, you know what, that's our dude? Well, the, the best comparison that people have made for Steve Wilkes is when you're seeing him in person, when you're hearing him speak, people just immediately think of Denzel Washington. So if you can kind of pull in that uh, Coach Boone kind of persona that you have of being a straightforward, no-nonsense, lockdown type of guy. It's very different from more of the kind of laid back and much more kind of, you know, drink a drink a beer with you after the game is done in the parking lot type of a player's coach that Bruce Arians was. Uh, he's much more of a kind of no-nonsense, very much back to fundamentals and basics guy, whereas uh, Arians is very much built around kind of these explosive offenses of being able to have this very kind of unfiltered area. Uh, Wilkes has been different in the fact where just so far through camp, it feels very much like this isn't his first head coaching gig. And some of his experience with the Panthers, such as you know, he took over as an interim head coach for a little while. He's been a defensive backs coach for years. It's been very buttoned up is kind of the words you'd use to describe the very fast-paced practices, very physical. Um, the attention to detail has been a big standout. But the biggest shift, obviously, of course, is going to be shifting from an offensive-minded head coach to a defensive-minded head coach. You're going to see a lot more of a commitment to not just running the ball to set up the pass, but trying to just run the ball to be able to, whether it's control the clock um, and a huge focus as far as takeaways and um, just being disciplined. So a lot of the areas, when you listen to Wilkes talk, some of the things you'll hear almost sound like there's something that Bruce Arians could have said as far as there's that typical kind of things that all the head coaches want to pound on. If we've got to be physical, you know, we've got to run the football. They, they all pound those same things. But the biggest difference you can say overall is just that instead of just being, you know, a head coach wanting to do it his way on his last gig, you're kind of getting a first-time head coach who's made his connections in the league. He's got a lot of guys who've been around on his staff, and he really wants to go out and kind of put his best foot forward and try to do things right versus, not to say that Arians didn't try to do things right, but it's an overall very different feel, and the players have been very responsive to it in a, a, a very interesting and almost surprising way since he's not really as much as what you'd call a player's coach, but it seems to be that everything that he's done by trying to get back to basics and trying to get a little bit better every day, they seem to have responded to it very well. So it's, uh, I guess you could say, is maybe more of a new player's coach. Might be a guy the rookies are a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of used to versus that aging Bruce Arians, whose favorite players are always these older veteran guys that you'd be able to, you know, bring off the scrap heap for having career years, just like they did with Carson Palmer or even a guy in midseason, like how they did bringing the, you know, the ghost of Dwight Freeney in back at the end of the season. So it sounds a little bit like his best selling point is that he looks and sounds like Denzel Washington, which, I, you know, being a little facetious, sure. But it, it sounds almost like Wilkes is the, the fullest realized form of someone like a Mike Singletary. Uh, in, in ways, yes. The biggest one, at least, that's been different is that when you look at what Mike Singletary, where he was kind of unable to really take a lot of whether you talk about the X's and O's and some of the delegating tasks, Wilkes is very much in terms of a veteran of understanding kind of some of the 
the process of he's brought in a lot of the different guys who are there. He kept some of the previous staff who'd been performing well. Uh, I think that there is at least a, a you know, there's, there's always going to be some of the cliches that are there. Like one of the easiest ones that was kind of almost groan inducing was there was a, I believe a, a brick with each player's name that was on it. That was kind of at each player's locker. There was a hurdle that they had in the middle of the room to kind of be like, you know, this is the hurdle you have to climb. So some of that is just very either, you know, cliche or just trying to be the coach speak, but the players buy into it, then you know, you're good. But again, it does count when you're winning games, you know, people are much more willing to buy in when they don't, then, you know, people are willing to bail. And that's almost exactly what we've seen with, you know, Pete Carroll and the Seattle Seahawks over the last two years. So it'll be interesting to see how Wilkes will, uh, you know, the team, at least the early responses so far has been good. A lot of the team is happy that they've hired him, but it's not going to matter until you get out between those white lines and see exactly what he does. The, uh, Best positive thing right now is that there has not been, you know, major errors such as, oh, this is a clock management error. Oh, didn't call a timeout there. That part at least has been pretty much buttoned up. And uh, we'll see how the more we learn about the new coach, uh, just what kind of game he'll call and what kind of game will be managed. Do you think that kind of stuff works with players? You know, of course, Hard Knocks is going on right now. And I don't know if you watch, but Hugh Jackson has taken his players through the whole earn your stripes thing. And... I, you know, I personally don't think that it matters one way or the other. I think if you've got a good team, you'll be good. And if you don't, then no matter of earning your stripes or jumping over hurdles or putting up fake bricks is going to fix that. Um, do you think that stuff is actually effective in locker rooms? Uh, depends on where I, I did work for a team at one point a while ago where the reason why they went in their workout room and painted everything like a certain color was because they wanted to have, you know, the same type of uniformity, the same type of team to trying to have that together as this is our place that we can have. So sometimes I've seen that was a team that went all the way to the championship and won. So you can say maybe it was because they're a good team. But I do think that there is an aspect where whether it's using, you know, well, sometimes it's metaphor, sometimes it's using things that will stick out. But a lot of it is honestly is just recognizing that coaching is another form of teaching. And if you're an effective teacher, then it doesn't really matter whether you're going to, you know, be talking about, you know, like uh, back during the Civil War, these guys would, you know, like do jumping jacks like I, like we've seen with some coaches on the uh, mentioned hard knocks. But um, I think that it works if you can see the rest of the details will follow. If you're going to be in a spot where, you know, you're talking about how, oh, you know, this is you have to do this, you have to do this. And the coaches don't hold up their end. That's kind of what causes a lack of distrust for the players. So you have to earn that trust. You have to be able to have that accountability. I think that's where some of the Cardinals fans, especially even some of the players down the stretch last year, there was issues where the players felt like some of the coaches weren't as accountable as the players were. The uh, special teams coach in particular, there was, you know, the kicker even went and had, I think Jay Feely went on national television, talked about how the kicker didn't trust some of the scheme that the coach had come in. He felt like it was a bit close, and that was why he'd pulled some kicks. After the season, hey, look, they changed the way that they did their formation. All of a sudden, he's making kicks, and it's no problem. When you have that type of accountability for yourself and your staff, even if you have some of the little, you know, cheesy or kind of cliche moments that are there, as long as you can at least get the players to buy into that and have the players on your back when things are well or when things aren't going well, it's probably not as much of an issue. If it does become an issue, that's going to be where you come out of the gate with like an 0-4 start and you're having, you know, like try to bury footballs or having to try to go through other different things that even like, you know, I don't, we don't have any uh, water in Arizona to really jump into uh, like Hugh Jackson does, but. I think it'll be kind of remains to be determined. The biggest thing, at least with Wilkes, that's been the positive is that this isn't a guy who's kind of coming in and, you know, you have there's those times you can get like, this is a bad feeling or this is a guy who's a rookie head coach. The fact that it doesn't feel like a rookie and you've seen that play out through the discipline and the practice, the accountability the coaches have had, and even quick reactions such as in one of the preseason games. Um, 
Wilkes uh, immediately after the preseason game said, yeah, we pulled this player here because he wasn't holding up his end of the bargain. There was no reason to leave him out there while they had a, a bad offensive line. And it's good to hear that because, you know, you have coaches who will say, I left the player out there just because he has to kind of go and earn it on his own and play through it. And a lot of times when it's pointless to do that, it just feels like it's a statement to be made in terms of power, not to actually help the guy get better. So as long as Wilkes is working on teaching and improving, uh, I think that it might be a solid hire for Arizona, especially if he can find a defensive means to counteract all of these top-notch quarterbacks that are in the NFC West division. All right, so Steve Wilkes sounds like he is the Denzel version of a CEO quarterback, or I'm sorry, a head coach, rather. Uh, and of course, he's going to be delegating some of the offensive stuff to Mike McCoy, which we'll get to in a minute. And, and But he's a defensive guy, so let's talk about the defense. And that kind of brings me to my next question for the Cardinals, and that's whether or not the team is going to be able to maintain its defensive quality with a new alignment uh, and even a new scheme. So last year, we know the defense was very effective, and basically it's the only reason the team mustered an 8-8 eight eight record. Their EPA on defensive plays, weeks 1 through 16, because week 17, uh, PFF lopped off that one because especially the Rams-Niners games was basically backups versus starters, and it, it looked that way. So when you look at EPA on defensive pass plays, Arizona was second in the division at seventh in the league, and their EPA on defensive run plays, weeks 1 through 16, they were ninth in the NFL or first in the division. Their defense was really the strength of that team, and it kept them in close games. So the team now, of course, is transitioning from a 3-4 to a 4-3, which isn't as huge of a deal now as it was you know, in previous eras, but you do see some pretty legit changes. So are there any changes that worry you, or do you think that these changes are generally going to be for the better overall? I think it's a combination because when you're talking about the talent level of the team, on um, the team, you know, they lost Tyron Matthew in the offseason was the biggest area where you could say perhaps they could take a, a step back just because of the name. His play last year did leave some areas to be desired, but he still did make some quality turnovers. Uh, he just did not kind of perform at the level where they were looking at the second highest paid free safety in the NFL. And they're willing to say, hey, you have to take a pay cut because right now we've got this guy, Buda Baker, over here who's been, you know, performing really, really highly. He can just slide right in and replace you. And he didn't want to take the pay cut. So his departure is going to leave a bit of a hit. They've looked at replacing him with um, a guy like a Jamar Taylor. And uh, even as the free safety um, from the formerly the Carolina Panthers uh, last year with the Chargers in Trey Boston, they've been able to kind of bulk up some of their secondary to kind of sustain some of that loss. Um, really what they've struggled to do is to find a playmaker on the other side of Patrick Peterson. The Cardinals have been in a position where because they've had a shutdown corner, they really haven't had to draft high or you know pay a guy. They just usually wait until there's a player who kind of fits their scheme, can play man corner well, and then insert him on the other side of the line. Um, so what they're trying to do this season to kind of maybe not compensate for that as much, but they really want to try to get Patrick Peterson back into playing coverage where he can make plays on the balls. You know, he was one of the least targeted cornerbacks in the NFL the last few years. Just because he would lock down guys on his side of the field, they'd look elsewhere for the guy who's open. So for them trying to make some changes to see if they can get him to making plays on the ball, that's one of the areas that they're looking to make a change. Uh, up front, as far as a 4-3, some cases I think it might be a benefit. Um, as far as with Chandler Jones as a linebacker, he is fine as a 3-4 edge player when he's rushing the passer, but in a 3-4 you don't always end up just running your guy at the quarterback. Sometimes you'd have to drop him back in coverage and 
That's not what you usually want to see from the guy who got the the number one was your sack leader in the NFL last year had the most sacks. Of yeah, him. I mean he had he had seventeen sacks. So I mean yeah, at seventeen sacks, I'll take whatever deficiencies in coverage uh, as a three four outside linebacker. Because and even then, overall your coverage grade wasn't bad. Again, ninth in the NFL or or no seventh in the NFL on EPA on defensive pass plays and uh, and second in the division. So I mean yeah, he, Chandler Jones, you sure, but. You're taking someone who racked up 17 sacks, and now you're saying, all right, put your hand in the dirt, and, and that is a bit of a change. Yes, it is. He did play defensive end, obviously, in college and with the Patriots. Um, sometimes he even lined up as an interior rusher. What they're really trying to focus on with this Cardinals defense is trying to make it where they're simplifying some of the roles. Under James Betcher, they kind of took Todd Bowles' defense that he had established from 2013 and 2014 before he left to coach the Jets to kind of make it a Swiss Army knife where you had multiple safeties, you had multiple blitzes and pass rushers, trying to kind of mix up and confuse the quarterback. And that led to a lot of, you know, great plays against, you know, and where it led to that 2015 run. But when it came to the 2016 and 17 season, Betcher kind of, they, they shifted into more of a zone coverage. There was even some frustration that Patrick Peterson in one play notable against when they were led up by Tom Savage for, I think it was 300 yards and three touchdowns, where you can even see on a film where one of the wide receiver shifts, he just throws his head back and just kind of groans. And then all of a sudden, it's a pass to a wide open player because they shifted to his zone coverage. It wasn't supposed to be at least in zone coverage or man, that wasn't going to be the right call, but that's what the defensive coordinator wanted. So what the players have said is that they preferred the switch to a 4-3 because they felt like it will allow their defensive linemen to be able to rush the passer. It allowed their athletic linebackers and Dayon Buchanan and Hassan Reddick to make plays. And then you're trying to look at a secondary to force turnovers. That's all well and good. There's usually an, uh, a little bit of a struggle up front. And the biggest thing that it does question with Arizona is going to be their depth on the defensive line and at linebacker. When you take a look at Dale Buchanan, he's a valuable player in terms of that. He kind of brought around this idea of this money or dollar linebacker, you know, small, light linebacker who can cover these tight ends, who can pass catch in these slot receivers. But, at, you know, 6'1", 225 pounds, you're, you're a guy who can get mauled over in the run game if you're not going to be, you know, going out and having to make plays in space. On the other side, Hassan Reddick, it's his second year in the league. He's had to learn so far three different positions already. He said to, he came out of college as a defensive end, was originally recruited as a safety, if you can believe it, and has had to kind of learn an inside linebacker in a 3-4 and now an outside 4-3. So the transition that they'll have, at least with that, is uh, important because they don't really have that much depth at their other linebacker positions. You're talking about a veteran journeyman guy in Josh Bynes who's manning the mic. Um, some injuries that they've had through camp. They'll be good for the regular season, but really the team does not have as much depth at the linebacker position. And there's questions about whether if they get past that first line of defense, is the run defense going to hold up at that second level? Uh, so that's kind of one of the areas. And then the biggest one, obviously, with the 4-3 is you're shifting from having these five technique guys who are kind of on the edge, maybe funneling guys toward the middle to trying to find these more three techniques to penetrate. And that's really going to reflect on a 30, I believe it's 31-year-old Corey Peters. Is he going to be able to stay healthy and effective? He's been a very underrated player. Pro Football Focus has had him highly ranked every year. And on the other side, you're going to have kind of a... He's ranked highly in the heart of Daniel Kilgore because Daniel Kilgore still has nightmares about Corey Peters. Yes, he does. <laughs> no, Corey Peters is a very effective lineman. He's part of it is he's so good technically, and he's a very like he's a guy who can just dominate and maul in the run game for that. The biggest question that they have, honestly, is going to be with former first round pick Robert Kimdichi, who has had a you know every year it seems like he always kind of blows up in camp. You'll see him you know blowing up guys where the guys are just hitting the floor left and right because he's overpowering them at the line and making big plays in the preseason. 
And then sometimes he just, he seems to just get hurt, have a lower body injury, kind of fades off, just doesn't seem to have it translate. And in his third year in the NFL, if he doesn't make it translate, they've got solid quality depth of Rodney Gunter and Pierre, or excuse me, Olsen Pierre behind him, two guys who are, one's an undrafted free agent, the other a late round pick. But if those are guys who are late round picks outperforming your first round pick, then the Cardinals are going to be in a spot where they're going to have to just try to hold up and see if they can get, you know, anything out of that pick and maybe looking at defensive tackle in the future because you invested a lot into the player. And uh, if you're not able to kind of make this transition to a four three, which really does favor him. And if he doesn't have one of those, you know, you know, uh, kind of performance seasons or kind of booms or like, Oh, this is the year he's arrived. Then you're going to really be kind of having to think through a lot of things going into next year uh, with the Cardinals. So that would be kind of the biggest sum up of just their transition. What I do think personally from after like seeing this and looking at the team, I think in some cases, I think that they may improve on defense. I think they'll be able to, potentially force more turnovers with Patrick Peterson. I think that they'll be able to, you know, by having Chandler Jones completely rush the passer, I think that they'll be able to have a bit more effectiveness. But there's still question marks that'll have to be figured out. So that's where with the defense, either it's going to be in some cases it's an improvement, in other spots, you know, maybe you take a step back in stopping the run. Maybe you're not able to guard tight ends as effectively for that. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Cardinals will work. But the fact that they already have been able to force a lot of turnovers in the preseason, to me, I, I think that it bodes that they may be uh, one of the strong points of the team moving forward. And there may be a little less of an adjustment period than you would think at first. I mean, the, the preseason's the preseason, right? Let's not try and make mountains out of molehills. You still have the completely defeated Cleveland Browns that went undefeated in the preseason. One of the picks, I think, in, in the last game was a, you know, a bad pass tip ball that eventually fell into, I think, Hassan Reddick's hands. So, I mean, turnovers are one thing. I, I do think that changing the defense in any way, shape, or form, especially when you had a good defense is a risk. You've got Holcomb and Wilkes who run an aggressive, pretty blitz-heavy defense that puts a lot of pressure on your coverage linebackers and defensive backs. They were the only ones that blitzed more, so you're going to see more yeah. blitzes than you did last year. Exactly. And you've got Patrick Peterson, who is not going to be a problem. That guy is going to be fine. He's great. But Deion Buchanan had a terrible year in coverage this last year. I mean, if Deion Buchanan was your worst ranked or your worst graded player as graded by PFF over the course of the year, which is a surprise because he's not a bad player per se, but playing in the interior, maybe he gets, he, maybe he benefits from a move to Will. Maybe he's just, you know, at, at that point where he's not very good anymore. Who the hell knows? But you're counting on someone to perform in coverage that had a very, very down year last year. You lose Matthew, who's a good coverage defender. Um, he was actually your ninth ranked defender last year. You've got Hassan Reddick, who you said has learned a bunch of positions, also did not grade very well last year. His coverage grade was not as bad as Deion Buchanan's, but still not great. So you're, ta you're taking a scheme that works works well enough to be a top 10 defense to keep you in a lot of games and you're kind of blowing it up a little bit and you're saying all right now let's go ahead and put a bunch of stress on players that may not be able to do it and then get rid of a player that we know can because we don't want to pay him eight million dollars and and i think it's a bit of a stretch to say that like it's, it's going to be okay and you're just going to get a lot of turnovers yeah it might be a bit of a stretch but some of it is also recognizing that the cardinals were in a four three alignment lot last year and so because they played such a hybrid defense and i know like even i think you opened this up the transition to a 4-3 in the nfl it's not as much of a stretch today for that one so i think it'll just depend ultimately on what is this team going to end up producing week in and week out i mean the you know there's the biggest thing i have to say that i honestly agree there are questions about this team that i have because with how much cap space that they'll have you know you're assuming that they're going to be moving on from sam bradford after the year regardless of how sam bradford performs uh, the team has got questions that they'll be having in. So 2018 in a lot of different ways, 
it's going to be a setup year for 2019 because you're going to be looking at who are the guys who are going to be here and performing and who are the guys who are not because you've got draft picks, you've got cap space next year, you've got players who are kind of going to be holdovers from the previous regime. You almost have to kind of not earn, earn your way onto this 53-man roster. You have to earn your way on and then make sure that you're going to you know still be there and performing when you're entering into the 2019 realm. And it's not just all of Bruce Arians guys anymore now it's going to be who's going to be Steve Wilkes guys moving forward yeah I mean you've also we haven't even talked about losing uh Tremont Williams who was another highly rated guy Antoine Bethay found the found the fountain of youth last year which is awesome uh another former 49er that's that's out there in Arizona but but still I think there's definite question marks and there's this weird kind of age gap with the defense where you've got some of the older guys Antoine Bethay Patrick Peterson's getting up there even Deion Buchanan you could argue is is getting up there and then you've got this this younger crew and we talked about this with the Niners as well, that you, if everything goes right, yes, you could see things turning out really well, but we know that in the NFL, not everything goes right and not everything turns your way. So let, let's switch gears a bit and let's talk about Mike McCoy, because the next question really for 2018 is going to be whether or not Mike McCoy is any good. The Cardinals are seeing mass, massive turnover on offense, um, excluding situations caused by preseason injuries. The Cardinals will have the second most offensive turnover in terms of carries and pass attempts in the last 20 years. I'm sure you know this, so we'll give you a quick pop quiz. Only player returning to the Cardinals that attempted a pass last year is who? Oh, gosh. I, if you had to say about who attempted a pass, Larry Fitzgerald is the one who actually threw a yep. pass last year. So that's, yep. that's, the, that's exactly the impression right. that you have. The only player returning to the Cardinals that attempted a pass for the same team last year is indeed your Hall of Fame wide receiver, Larry Fitzgerald. So Mike McCoy, of course, he comes with this, this kind of up and down pedigree. And pedigree, I'm using it in the loosest of terms. Um, he's had a kind of 12 offensive coordinator seasons, only three of which he's finished inside the top half of the league in points scored. Four of those seasons finished with the team in the top half of the league in rushing. And only one of those seasons they finished in the top half in yards per attempt. Seems like, especially with Wilkes, he wants to focus on running the ball. Mike McCoy's played and coached a lot of different systems. And it seems like the one thing that makes Mike McCoy offenses go, as any offense really, is going to be a really good quarterback. Roethlisberger uh, and, uh, oh, not Roethlisberger, Rivers, of course, is what, what helped put Mike McCoy on the map. Uh, and that's what he's able to do, um, is take a good quarterback and basically not screw it up. And there's something to be said for that. But the question is still there, right? It, does that mean that he's any good? Yeah, I think that with the McCoy, the biggest question that you have to look at with him is, are you able to kind of create a dynamic offense with Mike McCoy? I think the answer to that is Mike McCoy will be able to create as dynamic of an offense as the players that he's given. Whereas a guy like a Kyle Shanahan, I could honestly say that, you know, he's a guy who you could take a look at the multiple types of offenses. And, you know, when you've got C.J. Beathard at quarterback, it's one thing. You put in Jimmy Garoppolo with a bunch of guys who are just, you know, from different areas. And, you know, they've gotten some talent that's been developed there, obviously, on the offensive side. But it's very different. So I think that's where you hit on the key with the rushing stats is the entire game is going to be focused around the run game, the running backs. Which, as a, a Niners fan, I am super happy to hear because we know that, that running the football is the wave of the future for the NFL. It's the way modern offenses are built. It's the most efficient play in pro football uh, and sarcasm. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a change for the Cardinals on offense because in 2017, Arians lined up in three wide 69% of the time, which was ninth in the NFL. They fielded an empty backfield 17% of the time, which was first in the NFL. Mike McCoy has got a fullback. They're bringing it back to like 2008. It's going to be awesome. Of course, Niners know that a fullback inherently is not bad. 
Uh, but I'm curious to see what, what Mike McCoy is able to do because the offense seems tailor-made for Sam Bradford, that kind of horizontal passing requiring an accurate passer that gets the ball out on time. Uh, McCoy is you know very much a, a West Coast guy. He got his start with Seifert in Carolina, uh, and he actually played for the 49ers, I think, once upon a time. And, and so I think that he's probably more of a West Coast guy, but I, I just don't know whether or not the the innovation that McCoy brings, which is you know putting you know a full a pass catching fullback on the field and running backs in the slot, is something that's going to be worthy of an effective offense in in today's NFL. Horizontal passing is is not something when, that you would consider the forefront, and, and I think you yourself said it right. It's not going to be a dynamic offense, and so the the picture I'm getting right now is okay. Question number one is you know what who is Steve Wilkes? Since he's a defensive minded guy who, you know, maybe a motivator may not be, but he's going to delegate some things to whom? To a defensive coordinator that's going to change things and put pressure on defensive players who may or may not handle it well. And an offensive guy who's going to have full reign for the offense that is going to be employing strategies that may or may not be antiquated, may or may not be good. And and hopefully David Johnson is just going to be able to make everyone rise above. And and that gets to kind of the key question, which is that the fortune of every team is dependent on their quarterback. And and right now that is Sam Bradford, and it may be Josh Rosen. So, which player do you think ends up starting uh, at, at the beginning of the year? Yeah, no, Bradford's going to be the starter. They've unless you know you unless you know week three his knee just breaks in half, which you know there's no ruling that out. It's always possible. It's always possible. I think that was even where uh, I think that was how someone had even talked about how there's a there's a new burger that the Cardinals have introduced where. It's $75, and the thing, if you eat the entire burger in under an hour, you, like, get a free jersey, your name on the board. There's, like, all of this stuff because it's just this giant, terrible, awful burger. It's, like, it's a heart attack waiting to happen. So the joke that I had was, well, you know, I would go ahead and order that burger because on my trip to the hospital in the ambulance, I'd get to meet Sam Bradford, too. You know, it's great. Free jersey, hospital trip for that one. Sam Bradford's just right there in the ambulance next to you. But, but no, for that one, Sam Bradford is going to get the start for the season, but the fact that he's already having to take a lot of veteran days off for the team to keep him upright. And part of that is just with the rehab. Part of that is recognizing that he probably is on at some point a type of count before he either may get injured. If he does go and play all 16 games, it will be kind of a surprise because this team is high enough on Josh Rosen that I could see them potentially switching over. If the team is not like, you know, going to be in any type of playoff contention kind of week eight or later and Sam Bradford's still there. I could see them start to transition just to make sure they can get their snaps for the new rookie because He's uh, been very, very good. They've been impressed with not just his demeanor and his, you know, ability to take on the playbook, but he's a very, very smart guy. All right. Well, that wraps up the Cardinals 2018 season preview. So, Blake, let's go ahead and get to the lightning round, which is going to be the final segment of today's show. This is just going to be really brief questions, like over-under questions, or who you think the offensive player of the year is going to be for your team that's a non-quarterback, things like that. Uh, that we'll get to uh, just kind of give me your first gut impression, what you think, and we'll go quickly through them. Sound good? Yep, yep. Sounds good. I'm ready. All right, cool. Uh, give me your offensive player of the year. So basically, offensive player that's not a quarterback. Go. <laughs> Is there any other possibility than David Johnson here? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you could go Larry Fitzgerald maybe, but I guess if it's not David Johnson, then... Um... That'd be my heart would say Larry, but everything else, no, no. It's going to be David. <laughs> All right, the best cheeseburger you've ever had in your life. Go. Oh, best cheeseburger I've ever had. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Chuck Box down at Tempe. That's right by Arizona State University. Go Devils. Uh, all right. Defensive player of the year. Oh, for the Cardinals for that one, I'm going to give it again to Chandler Jones. He's motivated, especially after Madden decided to rank him lower than, you know, a lot of other players who didn't finish with the most sacks in the NFL. 
Uh, if that's what motivates him, then he's got problems. M- player most likely to make their first Pro Bowl. I'm going to go ahead and kind of go on a little wild card. I think that Christian Kirk, their second round pick, he's a punt returner. There's been a lot of attention that Wilkes has played the special teams, which will be helpful since the Cardinals are ranked 30, I believe it's like 31st or 30th the last two years or so. I'll say Christian Kirk at least is the guy who's going to potentially make the Pro Bowl as a special teamer. All right, Rookie of the Year, go. Uh, I was going to say, uh, Christian Kirk is not the guy who I'm giving Rookie of the Year to. I'm giving it to the fourth-round running back, Chase Edmonds, who's going to get probably a lot of the snaps. So I don't, I don't think that it's going to be you know, entirely the David Johnson show. They're going to see Chase Edmonds is going to see the field a lot. I think he's going to do a really good job. All right, the guy that we don't know yet, but we will after we play you, this has been dubbed the Corey Peters Award. <laughs> oh, yes, the guy that you don't know now, but you'll know after that one. I'm going to say that it's going to be Buddha Baker because the fact that he's the guy who people are like kind of knowing the name, they're seeing him now. I think that this is going to be the year that he kind of explodes and kind of takes that next step into becoming a star player in the NFL. I think that he's going to basically be kind of the next Tyron Matthew in a lot of different ways. And I think that he's going to be really, really favorite as a big hitter over the middle because he's going to be that chess piece all over the place, whether it's chasing, sacking the quarterback or playing in the slot for that. He's going to be all over the place in Steve Wilkes defense. The bargain non-rookie deal. So basically, this is a deal that is like a bargain. Can't believe we got this person for this much money, but he's going to be great based on his contract. Go. Yeah, and, and, and you talked about with Antoine Bethea getting up there in age. Trey Boston, he might actually replace Bethea long-term. He's on a one-year deal. I think he's going to be their bargain shopper. Number of starts. Josh Rosen starts. Oh, number of Josh Rosen. Eight. Uh, I'll say eight. All right. And then last question. Last question is the Cardinals' final record. And their season finish. So if you're predicting anything in the playoff realm, kind of where they go. Yeah, I, I've been predicting for a long time, at least seven and nine. It's going to be similar to last year. I think that there's enough question marks that I have that I didn't want to have to go with eight and eight. But I'm going with seven and nine for the team. If they do end up putting it together and everyone stays healthy, eh, maybe this is a nine win team. But for right now, at least until I can see it proven on the field, I'm going to go ahead and take the under on that. All right, Blake. Well, thanks for coming on and previewing the Cardinals. And uh, we'll make sure that folks can check your articles on Revenge of the Birds and follow you at Twitter at BlakeMurphy7. Blake, thanks again. Absolutely. Always happy to talk at least with, you know, good to have a little friendly barbs back and forth with the other individual. All I know is that uh, we just don't talk with Seattle fans. That's the one rule of thumb, right? Uh, yeah, although generally our conversations with the Seattle guys are pretty good. So, <laughs> um, well, It's a longstanding thing that most Arizona fans have, and I'm like, I, I don't see the same thing. But you know what? It's all good. It's all fun, at least for that one. It's going to be a lot of fun years, I think, hopefully looking forward to some of these quarterback duels is what I'm hoping for. I think if there's a hopefully if there's a Madden curse, hopefully there's not a better, better rivals Blake curse where your quarterback uh, gets injured and has to not play here in a little bit. Although... You keep signing quarterbacks that make themselves real, real injury prone. So we'll, we'll see. Hopefully nothing befalls Sam Bradford. But if something does, uh, it wasn't me. Awesome, Blake. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much. Have a good one. And you know how it goes. As always, go Niners. I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? <laughs> and why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. <laughs> 
We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find us anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.